to your show or mine or mine i'm becky standall youth services librarian at the longview public library i'm austin brigden administrative assistant at the longview public library and i'm hillary strobel passionate longview public library patron and a member of the longview city council thanks for being on the podcast today you two yay yeah so uh, today we're going to be talking about the Octavia Butler novel, Parable of the Sower, which we've been planning on discussing on the podcast for a while. Um, but before we get to that, we have some library updates. So the biggest news is that we were going to record this podcast last week. So it is coming out a week late, but suddenly got the call that the library could open to the public. So we had to rush into action to make that happen this past Monday, February 22nd. And so we are open on a limited basis, Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to noon and 2 p.m. till 4. And we're also still have our drive through open, our regular drive through hours. And so this was our first week. We didn't get a lot of publicity out about it because it was so quick. So it was kind of a slow start, but right now we're limiting people to 20 minutes at a time in the building, and I think next week we'll we'll get to see a, a few more of you. So that's exciting. Austin? Yeah. Uh, last night we had our first Northwest Voices event of the 2021 season, mm-hmm. um, an evening with Robert Michael Pyle and Judy Vandermaiten about their, their collaboration, The Tidewater Reach, a book of photographs and poems. It was really wonderful, went off really well. We're going to be having our next Northwest Voices on March 25th, uh, John C. Hughes. John C. Hughes, who was on the podcast in um, November, December? Yeah, friend, uh, fans of the podcast will remember. Um, he's going to be here to talk about his book on Julia Butler Hansen, probably one of the most effective and, and beloved politicians this Southwest Washington has ever produced. If you don't know about her, it's an incredible story. So tune in for that. We also have the Seed Library opening next week on, well, on March 1st. Yes, I should remember that. Seed Library is opening next week. Our seed catalog is going to be up on the website for everybody to browse, and then you can select your 10 packets, which will be available to pick up in the drive through You can start ordering March 1st, and orders will be available to pick up starting March 8th, the following Monday. We've got a bunch of new seeds, um, some cool stuff, and stay tuned because we're going to have a series of speakers. We're going to have prizes. We're going to have kits. There's a lot coming. Very exciting. Yeah. What else is going on, Becky? Well, we will have a new all-ages craft March 1st also. We're doing paper plate loom. So there's an instructional YouTube video that's going to go up on March 1st, and then you can pick up your supplies to do that in library drive through starting March 1st as well. Our last, like our February craft, the Valentine's craft that we did, was incredibly popular. I don't know if I can judge how popular anything else is going to be right now because that one was so over-the-top popular. We had probably, I don't know what Jacob said, like 90 
packets go out and people returned hundreds of Valentines. And they really went like above and beyond the whole concept. Mm-hmm. There's like ones where people made like a coloring sheet and then included in the envelope little colored pencils to color it. Or they made their Valentines and then taped little candy bars on the envelopes for the people. Just like really beautiful. And it was done by all people of all ages, like little kids and teenagers and adults. And Sandra's taken those all out to senior living centers here in town and, and distributed them to people. And it's just been really, it's been really beautiful. So I'm really thankful for everybody who participated in that. It was successful way beyond what, what I thought it was going to be. So <laughs> that was amazing. amazing. Yeah. If I may say, Ava, Ava actually, we got one bag for me and one for Ava. So we had Valentine's just everywhere for <laughs> days and she got so into it. It was amazing. <laughs> Delightful. Great. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. It's nice. We've been getting lots of nice feedback. From people, and I was viewing that Northwest Voices event last night, and there was a lot of really nice comments from people too at the at the end about like what you know what a nice evening they had had with them and stuff. So yeah, it was very it was it was it was really touching. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about that event is that so we had you had like 40, 40 screens attending. Yep, forty two. Yeah. But uh, if you missed it, like if you were at a city yes. council meeting. <laughs> um, you'll be able to watch it on our YouTube page. Yes. Later, so. Yes. Oh, one other thing I did want to mention, if you find yourself in the building, we have a comic corner now. The graphic novels have moved down off the mezzanine. Beautiful collection of graphic novels, adult graphic novels. But you'll also find the teen comics and the manga. Manga? Manga up there. Manga. <laughs> yes, these are uh, underneath the mezzanine, right by the stairs that go up to the mezzanine. The adult graphic novels on one side and the teen graphic novels facing them. Um, and it's given us so much room to really show off those collections. I'm really excited. I've been on the great graphic novel committees last two years. And that has both meant I've been reading like hundreds of comics and really appreciating them. But it's also helped expand our comics collections for adults, teens, and kids through the books I've received from publishers. So lots of good stuff. New. I'm Definitely a growing area in our library, and there's gonna be there's gonna be more cool stuff happening in that corner. So stay uh, tuned. If I may say, I saw that when I was there on Tuesday and found the graphic novel version of The Handmaid's Tale, which mm. I knew I had to grab mm. immediately. So. Nice. Would definitely recommend checking that section out. It was very impressive. Yeah. Oh, I I I moved the that collection down. It was kind of buried up on the mezzanine in the stacks, and I was just so many beautiful books in there. Yeah. Uh, it's it's exciting, and it's going to grow a bunch because Becky brought in like boxes of books from publishers last last year. Yeah. So it's going to grow a bunch. Um, I think I told you that last year I, I read one of um, Che Guevara and his backstory oh, yeah. and, and then it was but it was done in this this style where it's just like this huge story that's over many years and many countries condensed into this one digestible thing it's like oh this is probably the best biography of Che Guevara I've ever read <laughs> nice yeah I've seen that one up there yeah. and um we also have the graphic novel version of Parable of the Sower that's oh. true 
It might still be in new books right now. But I have my own copy here at home, too, and I started to read it last night. It seems to be, like, extremely faithful as far as I've gotten so far. I can only imagine um, how the graphic novel will deal with the incident that puts Lauren out on the road. Mm. Um, that ought to be quite interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. It's by the same team who um, did the graphic novel adaptation of Kindred. And they do, it's like really thick lines, really like monochrome palettes. So like they'll change, but it's a lot of browns and reds. But even in the beginning where she's, they're walking to the church for her to get baptized, the way that they kind of show that she's feeling like the pain of the people who they pass on the street is kind of interesting because like her face is in the middle, in the center of the, like it's like a double page spread and the people are drawn on her left and then they've drawn her with their like ailments on the right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Anyways, I digress. Do, <laughs> do we have any other, um, um, any other library stuff? So we're still doing uh, our winter story time. season me for a couple more weeks. And then we'll be taking a two-week break in the middle of March before coming for our spring story time round. So check our website for the dates for, for that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Could I give a quick plug from the city side um, just to encourage people when they come to visit the beautiful, beautiful library that looks amazing? Um, and if I could just say how wonderfully the staff put this together um, to make sure that it's safe for everybody, but just to encourage everybody to continue to wear their masks when they're in the building and to keep a six-foot distance. So, yes, thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is true. We can only keep the library open as long as people are following all of the... Absolutely. And thanks to everybody who's been in so far. has been has been great. So great. Uh, let's yeah. let's keep yeah. going with that. Let's keep it up. Yeah. Nobody nobody wants to go back to phase one. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. yeah, everybody has been really great. Just so happy to be there and, and it's been nice to see. Like Jacob said to me yesterday morning, like a family came in, some girls and you know, they're um, having a hard time picking which you know, which books they can because I think they all wanted like forty books in the month. <laughs> let's just do 10 each or something and when they all left he was like i didn't realize how much i missed this Mm. yes the same it was very emotional the last time i set foot in there was i guess march 16th 2020 until until this past tuesday the 23rd and it was it has been yeah it has been quite emotional yeah the parable of the sober yes so we picked this book because I think, Hillary, you had been reading it. I did. So I checked out um, a library sampler through your sampler program, and it was one of the books that had been included in the sampler. So, you know, the deal with the sampler is you can go on the website and you can say things that you would prefer, and you can certainly request certain things. And then some of it is just the librarians know things that you might be interested in, Um because your job is to know what your what your community mm-hmm. would enjoy and, and love to read. And so um, Parable of the Sower was tucked in there. And 
I read the flap and I thought, well, this I want to read because the character of Lauren is um, a, a hyper empath. And so what she, uh, her character experiences in the book is, is kind of uh, drawn out in the book that she will experience people's pain. Not so much the joy. I don't think that that really got explored she, so much. But yeah, she talks about a little bit about how she can experience people's pleasure, but there's just right. not a lot of opportunities mm. in her world yes. for her to exactly. do that. Yeah, I think that's a construct of the story world in which she lives, that there isn't a whole lot of pleasure to be experienced. But she's empathetic to the point where she might spontaneously bleed in sympathy with somebody who was injured and had a cut and was bleeding. So um, I myself am quite empathetic and often will feel probably not a, to the extreme degree that the character does, but also feel that sense of empathy. So I was very drawn to it. And then I kept telling the two of you about it, that this mm -hmm. book was really incredible. And I had only maybe read the first third of it and I hadn't really gotten to the major plot point where it, it goes from sort of the domestic drama of Lauren's life and how she experiences what is going on in her world, which I know we'll get into, um, and then sort of puts her out, kind of becomes on more of a road novel. Yeah, on the road mm -hmm. kind of novel. And um, so I read that first section and I just kept telling you guys, this is so amazing because she's these, this empath and I don't really ever read many characters that are so empathetic. Mm. And one of the big, one of the big pieces, I think of that early part of the book was that she experiences even a death where discovering that she can live through a death because she does bleed with other people's bleeding. But when she witnesses a death in the story, she knows that as painful as it is, she'll survive it. And so it, um, that was what I had gotten to when I suggested, wouldn't it be fun if we all read this so that we could talk about it together. Um, yeah. And then it just so happened that the timing was quite perfect because it's written by Octavia Butler and here we are in February, and it would seem like a good time to discuss this really strong, powerful black female writer. So here, <laughs> that yeah. was kind of my, yeah, you know, something that I just really thought would be fun to to share with the two of you and reading reading this book. And then you know, let's let's get into talking about how the rest of that book came out. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't realize that this had come in your sampler. So Chris picked this out for you. He did. Yes. This is always tricking us into reading sci-fi. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> I was I was really happy to have an opportunity. You know, that's one of the great things about these opportunities where, you know, Octavia Butler has been having sort of a, a moment. People are recognizing her work yeah. more. Um, and that goes right along with, you know, breaking down some of the barriers for so-called genre writers to be sort of in the canon and all that. So, you know, I had it on my list for a long time to read her. And so it was it was nice when you brought it up. It was like, oh, oh yeah. finally have an opportunity to force myself to knuckle down and read. And I think part of it, so I sent you guys a story from NPR that Jennifer had sent me about, it's talking about Parable of the Sower and how many people are reading it right now because mm. it feels, you know, prescient. so Yeah, prescient. Yeah. And it takes yeah. place in, it starts in the year 2024, which is three short years from now. But the the blurby on the front of the edition that I have is from John Green. He says it's brilliant, endlessly rich, and pairs well with 1984 or The Handmaid's Tale. And I think those are two really good examples of mm -hmm. uh, books in that genre. So if you like those two 
Mm. Right, because we were talking, I think we were talking about this the other night, that The Handmaid's Tale had had a real big moment, mm-hmm. I guess, about four years ago. And, mm-hmm. was, and that was partially, I think, because the TV show was mm-hmm. was coming out about that time. And, and then here's a real time for people to kind of revisit the idea of what kind of futures are possible for Black people, both in America and, well, the whole di- diaspora, really. So, yeah, it, it just felt like a good time to read it. You know, I don't typically read sci-fi. And so, yeah, Chris did slip that into my sampler. And, and you know, I was like, okay, I will definitely give this a try. I have read Kindred. I think a lot of people have read Kindred. And, but I don't typically seek out sci-fi or speculative fiction. But I, I was just like, this, this book needs to be talked about <laughs> for sure. Yeah, this yeah. is like like The Handmaid's Tale. Like, I know that Margaret Atwood has always been reluctant to call that book science fiction. And she's, uh, she calls it speculative fiction, like this near future dystopia right. kind of. Yeah, yeah. And that's why and it's interesting, this interview with Octavia Butler um, at the end and in the um, story from NPR, they play some, some clips of interviews with her where she's talking about how she wrote this book based off of what she was seeing in the news and not necessarily like an imagination of the future, but of the consequences of what was going on in the present. Well, that's really interesting because when you read the book, I mean, the so say the political structure within the book is so totally warped and mm-hmm. and skewed. And I'm thinking, well, gee, if I was living in Octavia Butler's shoes and, you know, the early 80s when she wrote this thing it would have seemed really skewed i'm sure but then other things still work like money still works Mm -hmm. um supply chain apparently still works it's just the access yeah but like the access to those yes so utterly and i'm like well that's a reality that would have been very obvious to to octavia butler upon writing it and not as obvious to, to somebody like me, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and the book too really focuses on California mm-hmm. and what's happening there. They, I guess, and that's part of like they don't know because they're pretty cut off. Like they talk about they used to all have like a TV in their community that people could watch, and then it broke, and so they don't necessarily know what's happening um, in different parts of the world. There's or in the country. There's talk in the beginning when she's, I think she she's 15 when the book starts. Mm-hmm. I think um, so. About the presidential election and her father supporting or not supporting that um, man. But after that, it does get a little. Yeah. It's interesting how the politics is in the book around the, you know, it's a, the government seems pretty collapsed, but there's the whole generational politics of the older people sort of clinging to this presidential candidate or these ideas that are obviously not really functioning on the ground very much. And I thought that was really interesting and mm-hmm. feels interesting in our time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was definitely thinking last week, particularly with all of the devastation happening in Texas in particular, but in also other states where these extreme weather events that put people in such like dangerous situations you know, they like where they're not warm enough and they don't have water. Um, there's situations like where people were so cold in their houses that they were using these gas heaters and then getting carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. So all of this terrible stuff happening. And then also this rover landing on Mars. It really wow. made me think of the beginning of this book where they're talking about the space exploration program 
And at the same time, like people are suffering from all these environmental disasters. Wow. That's a, yeah. that's a stellar connection you just made. You know, and I got to tell you that as we are talking about what is happening in Texas, like I even feel my own body like, oh, like I can feel that. Just that hurt, that that sort of desperation and then put up against all that hopefulness. Because if I understand it, there were three or four countries sending rovers up to Mars at this time and that we are in a position as a global community to do such things at such scale. Mm -hmm. um, but we haven't quite figured out how to, what, feed the people? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little dystopian in our own time, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting in the book how she never feels that, like, this the space exploration is a waste of the government's resources or time, that she sees that as the the main hope for the future of her Earthseed people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another big part of the book is Earthseed. Do one of you guys want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, soon, Mr. Seed Library. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought it was really interesting because I've read a lot of books where there's a text. I and mean, it's always a tricky thing, I think, for a writer because if they're going to do more than refer to the text, if it's actually going to be there, you have to have the text hold up. Um, to the power it supposedly has in the story. And that's that can be a real trap for a lot of writers, you know, if they can't sort of deliver on that. But I, I feel like she does. And part of that is maybe because it's a religious text. And, you know, obviously there's a very strong tradition of, you know, sort of the tone and the cadences and all that of, of the Bible and of other religious texts give it that feeling. Yeah, she talks about in this interview, in the edition of my book, about having done so much research into different religions to develop her. She said her physical model for the the religious book was a Tao Te Ching. Mm. And oh, that before yeah. she was writing, what do they call the, what does she call the book? Or oh, the book of the Living. Book of the Living, yeah. Right, right. She hadn't ever written any poetry before. Octavia Butler had never written poetry. She had never written poetry before. Oh. Wow. I gotta tell you though, my the most favorite part of the entire book is this one passage out of Earthseed that I have written down that I now keep with me mm. at all about successful life. She says all successful life is adaptable, opportunistic, tenacious, interconnected, and fecund. And I was like, well, that's all I yeah. need to know all about. <laughs> Where, like, what is possible? Like, what Lauren sees? And that, because she is then, like, holding, this is the first book in a series of books, and mm -hmm. is then kind of developing this, this philosophy that will allow people eventually to explore other worlds, and using Earthseed as the basis for that. And so what I, what I thought, what I, that just all got tied up for me in this little quote about what successful life is all about, being tenacious and adaptable. Yeah. So, but she really makes it work. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It was it was quite powerful and poetic. Yeah. Huh. It makes yeah. I'm cur I'm curious to read. You know, I might have to read the Parable of the Talents, which is the follow up. I don't think she, if I understand right, I think she died before she could finish. You know, continue the series. Very young. Yeah. And very suddenly too. Tragically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was. I think in one of the articles in NPR, they were talking to a young science fiction writer who was going to be touring with their first book with her that year 
and then she she died before they could do that. That was another thing that made me really want to read it is there are so many people who so many writers are so attached to this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was there was a whole anthology, Octavia's Brood, of black science fiction writers. And it's just the book is such a catalyst for so many people. There's actually a new anthology of uh, science fiction stories. And I think the stories all feature like a black female protagonist mm. called A Phoenix First Must Burn that came out last year that I realized reading this book. I was like, oh, that's from that's from Parable of the Sower, that part of the Earthseed book where she says. Before it rises from the ashes. Yes. First must burn. It has to burn. Which is the thing that sets her off on the road, isn't it? So we haven't really like gotten very much into the plot. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> so it's, so it starts out with uh, Lauren. She's uh, 14 or 15, and she lives in this very dysfunctional, dystopian suburb of Los Angeles in the opening of the book, and and then walks her through this this kind of very important part of most teenagers' lives and puberty and what's possible. But what's going on around them, as we've said, is this truly not functional political reality. You know? And this destruction looks like global warming. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, and it's right. all, of course, that's why I say she's based off the news, but it's like, yes, in Southern California, they have these droughts that last years. There's like mm-hmm. problems where like maybe they'll run out of water or we've seen even like it's wildfires. Like, yeah. It, the the part where they're walking up later in the book where there's all yes. these wildfires in, um, you know, like the central Valley where they're traveling through that area. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, that's when I was a kid, yeah. And that's what's happening. And then when I was a kid, the big thing was um, air pollution. There's mm-hmm. just, oh. There were so, so, so many cars that were emitting such things. And so every day in the morning news would be an air quality indicator and we would be told today's not safe for you to be outside so if uh if i was walking from class to class in high school it was like okay get to your classroom and get inside the classroom and i don't know how you know it may be in other places it's just it's like you're so immersed in it you know i don't think earthquakes are a big deal because they were just a thing mm-hmm. that would happen and you just you're sort of there and it happens <laughs> Maybe you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, but you just don't think that way when you're when you grow up in that situation. So you just never really thought, gee, there's something really screwed up about that type of thing. And as we well know, those types of things end up very disproportionately affecting communities of color. And so you can just kind of feel that and read that through this this story Mm -hmm. and Lauren's Lauren's specific. So she, you know, she lives in a multi-generational and multicultural neighborhood. And it's implied that it was pretty middle class. Yeah, her but father certainly. was a Baptist minister and a college professor, mm-hmm. and her stepmother was too, a teacher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so then, yeah, so then she ends up like teaching the kids in the neighborhood. So, like at a certain point, things become so untenable in the so-called outside world that her neighborhood kind of bubbles in on itself. And so, we all kind of have experienced in the last year what bubbling together can mean for both good and bad reasons and so she's stuck with all these folks and she thinks that's what her life is going to be Mm -hmm. and one of the things going on in the background that again i think would be quite obvious to octavia butler and not necessarily to everybody else was the scourge of drugs Mm. and in her community and so what ends up happening is that there are groups of people who are addicted to a drug i cannot remember the name of it all of a sudden it's like cairo 
pyro, but it turns people into pyromaniacs yeah. and then become they become murderous pyromaniacs. And this is this is the incident when her neighborhood is then beset by murderous pyromaniacs and she is forced to leave her community and hit the road. And she and, pulls together a little team of some survivors from her own neighborhood and then they meet people along the way and they're trying to find somewhere they can go to create this earth seed community. Because this whole time, as you said, coming Becky, here the, so long view. Yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't quite make it that far. I, it, you know, the implication in the story, it, I don't think they really said, but it, it seemed like it was supposed to be like Humboldt County. Yeah. Um, yeah. Northern California. And that's as far as they got. But, um, you know, she's, as you said, she's the daughter of a minister. And so she's writing this earthseed philosophy the whole way throughout. And then that's kind of interspersed without. And, and the idea is that taking the seed from what's kind of best and possible on earth and then taking that out to explore other worlds, which I know would get explored in future books, some of which didn't get written. So yeah. that's, that's kind of our basic plot that we're talking yeah. about here. And two, with the the point about the the drug problems, is that Lauren's hyper empathy is a congenital disorder because her mom took these other drugs while she was pregnant. Yeah. yeah. And I think her writing this in like the late '80s and it being published in early '90s was the issue with crack addicted babies and stuff like that was very in the news. Yeah. And it's funny because it sets her apart. So, you know, she's the child of a different mother. So she's got a stepmother and then the stepmother and, and her father have other kids. Four brothers. And, yeah. She's got four brothers that are half brothers and they certainly treat her very, very differently. And so she seems to be considered a bit freakish within her family for that reason, for being this kind of drug addicted prodigy. <laughs> It's interesting with the road part of the novel, too, thinking about how it's so interesting how she does this. I mean, it's a future, forward looking, futuristic book, but it ends up being sort of full of parallels to the black experience in America before, you know, the sort of the flight north, of course, but also, you know, she ends up meeting runaway slaves. You know, the, the circumstances have brought the country back to slavery and sort of a roundabout way and i was just thinking how interesting it is that she's able to do both things at once she's sort of calling back to a lot of tradition while also looking at the future yeah and then the slaves that she ends up meeting they're all empaths too like in a way that like when she was young she had four brothers and like one was a really sweet brother and one was a really terrible brother and the other two were just kind of medium but i think it was one of them, I feel like maybe the terrible brother, had said that people with hyper-empathy like her would make really good slaves. Right. Because right. they'd be easy to control. Keith, the terrible brother, right? He's the terrible, terrible brother. brother. Well, Although, you know, Keith, is this, he's the same brother who cuts himself because he knows it'll make her bleed mm -hmm. in sympathy and empathy with him. Yeah, he's a terrible brother. <laughs> yeah, his story is really interesting, though. Yeah. He runs away really young, like 12, yeah. mm -hmm. to just, like, prove himself because he wants to prove himself to their father or something. Right. And ends up getting in with this gang and enjoys a lot of prosperity in the beginning and then ends up, of course, being yeah. killed. Mm -hmm. He's like the opposite. He's a very, un, I don't know, a very unempathetic character, mm -hmm. very opportunistic and kind of manipulative oh, but the way the stepmother loves him, mm -hmm. the tragedy of that whole situation where he's kind of maybe a little bit of a sociopath and but she's just desperately loves him. So sad. And that sets yeah. off like a 
portion of the book where it's just like one character after another dies. Yes. Right. right. And then I was just remembering then that she, that same stepmother who so desperately loves the sociopath actually like verbalizes her rejection of Lauren yeah. and says, if only, you know, X, Y, Z, you don't, you're not my daughter. And, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of them yeah. had been jealous of Lauren's relationship with her father. Right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, leave aside the future component. I mean, the characters and the drama. I mean, you've also got her. She's so close to her father, but yet so far, because although they have these same kind of religious impulses, she knows that he would reject what she's doing. So it's like. She really loves him and has this close relationship, but all along she's hiding this from him. And there's oh, the tragedy of that too. Yeah, that and then of course, time, like every yeah. survival skill and instinct that she has comes from him. Mm-hmm. And the fact yeah. that he doesn't survive is also really tragic. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's also weird. Let's just skip ahead to the end where she meets. <laughs> I know where old, Becky's going. The old guy. The old, the old guy. Who okay. she repeated. So it's like so she's. 18 at the end of the story and she one of the travelers they meet on the road is this charming man in his 50s who reminds her of her father like that's her first thing she's like oh he's handsome like my dad was handsome and you know he's a survivor like my father was and a professional like my father this handsome old man and <laughs> and I'm going to seduce him. I don't know. Oh, she it goes a, for it. She goes for it. It's so weird. <laughs> like, even like the night that they like get together, she refers to him as an old man over and over again. Yes. It was so and, and weird. I think, I think he does too. I think he expresses like you are too. Uh, I don't think he says you're too young for me, but maybe mm-hmm. like too too active, too vibrant. He mm-hmm. says something. To me. I have to apologize. You guys read that a little sooner than I did. Um, I, I read that a couple of weeks back. So, but he says something along those lines that he's a little bit nervous. That she almost has to like talk him into having this longer term relationship. Yeah. Yeah. But he never says anything about like, oh, you remind me of my daughter or something like that. Where it's like yeah. her. I I found. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make of this idea of this like man appearing who she sees as like a father figure and also as like a romantic interest. Well, unless you were thinking of it in like religious terms, I mean, like deliverance and, and redemption in, I mean, cause the way she loses her dad is he just sort of disappears out of the story. Yeah. And right. Actually her whole family just sort of vanishes out of the story, which was one of the things that I didn't quite find very satisfying when I read it was these pyro addicted murderers show up in the neighborhood and there's great graphic detail about what happens to basically everybody else in the neighborhood. And then her family just sort of is not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. She's, pretty sure that, she's pretty sure they're all dead, but does she it, never gets to like, know. Yeah. She never she actually gets know. to know. She doesn't um, know because her friend, she doesn't she get to know about the father though. No, she's yeah, just gone. He just, He's just yeah, gone. He just no resolution. Yeah, yeah. He just doesn't come home from work one day. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, her father, who was the child slave bride of this person in their neighborhood, she says, like, mm-hmm. oh, I saw your brother's been killed. Right. That's right. right. She does say that. Th- that's like a whole oh. other thing, too. What's her friend's name? But then, you know, I felt like when that came up in the story. Zara? Zara. Yeah. You're not quite sure if you trust Zara's narration of things. So I wasn't ever sure if she actually saw them or if she yeah. was correct. 
I got to tell you, if you were to read the next book, the implication is she is, in fact, wrong um, about what she saw. (laughs) Because it's a a major plot point in the next, in Parable of the Talents. Oh, actually, I do remember reading that spoiler now in the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. But I mean, I feel like even even just reading it in the book, I remember, you know, you kind of wonder about her. And I mean, obviously, you get to, she grows on Lauren throughout the book, but like, I don't know. She has such a strange backstory, and Lauren doesn't ever really know about it until until they're on the road. It doesn't seem like if her father had really understood that they would have stood for what had happened in their neighborhood, because essentially there's this, like, bigamist in their neighborhood who has three wives, and they kind of, like, let that go. But Sarah is, she's young. She's like a teenager or in her early 20s. She was sold by her mother mm-hmm. as a wife to this old man. And Lauren talks about as she's talking to her as they start their journey on the road about like she didn't realize, for example, like that she had been sold by her family. Yeah. And all of her background, her background of being just in such a terrible situation that would cause a family to sell their daughter as like a... Well, it's a child, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it gives her, like, a little bit more, like, as much as Lorne has survived and has this, like, survival, survivalist mentality, I think Sarah has it even more, where she's like, oh, things can be way worse than this. And right. I've been there. Yeah. The other thing that they talk about in the, in the interview with Octavia Butler at the end of this book is her writing this story as kind of like the origin story of a prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't read Parable of the Talents, but I do read in like these other articles where they're talking about Lauren as a character of her being just like a really charismatic religious leader who people listen to and follow. And she does start to do that kind of thing in this book, but not too much. Like I feel like people are interested in, in Earthseed and her ideas and stuff, but they follow her more for the possibility of surviving than for like a spiritual reason mm-hmm. exactly i actually noticed that because honestly i i don't know that i found lauren all that charismatic right mm-hmm. um and that's part I, of it like you're reading her journals right like you're in her head maybe that yeah maybe that's why maybe. yeah it's yeah and it's possible and well because i was trying as an empathetic person to be in her experience and i realized that there is a absolute layer that I will probably never be able to penetrate by virtue of being white, that I'll not understand the black experience that that she embodies. But I was really trying to get into like, why is everybody following an 18 year old girl down the road? (laughs) And that she says to them, well, come do this thing. And then they all just say, okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And the writing is good. The the text within the book is is good and is powerful. But then I thought, well, what is it about Lauren that is bringing everybody to her fundamentally? And it did it did I did find it a little harder to to, to catch yeah. that, yeah. To catch that empathy with, with with who she really is. I mean, I can empathize with the pain she's going through, and and the travel and the the finding of something new and better and different after a traumatic experience, but then I was trying really hard to, to see myself, yeah. you know, as an 18 year old, like leading a whole ragtag group of people yeah. to an I think, I think there's something to 
the way that she builds the the people that follow her. So like she starts off with it's her and Sarah and the Harry? white boy, Harry. yeah, Harry. And Harry. Uh, and I think there is a lot to. So she knew Harry her whole life, and they were friends, mm-hmm. right? Um, he had seen her be a little bit more forward-thinking than other people in the neighborhood, where she was saying, like, we should have, they don't call this mm-hmm. in the book, but essentially, like, bug out bags. We should be ready at any moment to run. And people were like, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about right. it. But, it's the, you know, when their neighborhood went up in flames, it turned out, like, she was the one who was prepared. Um, and I think he saw that and respected that. And I think traveling with a, you know, strapping young man who was also white and had kind of some safety in that also helped to draw other people a little bit. Although in the end, too, it did help. Like the, the last people who joined them, the, the man who was an empath, he was like, what's with this white guy? Like, <laughs> it, made him, it made him distrust the group more. But right. for, I think other people who had joined, the opposite was true. Yeah. I think it, it's interesting, too. There's kind of a tension. And I think this is true to how this happens a lot in life, where she's kind of one of the more sheltered and fortunate people in the group. You know, mm-hmm. up until that event that jettisons her to the road, she's like, you know, all these other people, like child bride, runaway slaves, you know. And uh, But I think that's true so of a lot of prophets and revolutionary type people that they are. She's She's got the luxury to think in these big expansive ways because she hasn't spent her entire life just trying to, you know, yeah. get from one moment to the next. Yeah. I think that's true a lot. You know, you, when you look back at that's often true. Yeah, that makes me think of the Buddha who was a very like wealthy nobility class who mm-hmm. happened to notice one day the misery and suffering outside of the walls of his palace and decided mm-hmm. to go amongst it and learn from it and, and then became a prophet mm-hmm. of what it means to go through all of that. So, I, I mean, in that sense, yes, that's a that's a pretty good call. I mean, she's got a pretty solid like middle class upbringing pretty obvious mm-hmm. from the context of her neighborhood that that it's you know educated she's been afforded a lot of opportunity yeah and as she draws people to the group like there's the couple with the baby it's like a lot of vulnerable people who kind of in a way they're like oh if we have this baby with us it'll it'll make us more vulnerable but at the same time they talk a lot of, and she talks a lot about in the group oh there's danger in having like a mixed race group like that makes us a target the bigger the group is the more targeted it is but those things are also what make them really strong mm-hmm. being able to like face you know the scavengers and thieves and murderers and stuff that they meet. But let me throw a little wrench in this because when Lauren and, and um, Harry and, and Sarah first hit the road together, she is trying to pass. Lauren is trying to pass as a man. Yes. Yeah. Right. She's, she's trying to pass herself off as Sarah's husband and that Harry is their friend. And so I Which just doesn't work when Sarah and Harry fall in love. No. Right. <laughs> There's a, right. there's a lot of coupling. There's a lot of coupling, book. yeah. Yeah, but um, but to the outside, I mean, that's something that happens in private at night. But right. to the outside observer, it's not until way much later in the book that she's sort of fundamentally kind of outed as a woman. And it's when she falls in love with the old man that she yeah. can kind of no longer hide herself as a man on the road. And only then is she really seen uh, from the outside world seems a woman. So I wonder if that changes their dynamic as well. Right. Supposedly it's two men and a woman instead of one man and two women out on the road. Yes. And that's the reason she does it. 
Right. Yeah. Well, and to avoid the mixed race implications, right, of a mm. um, white man and black woman. Yeah, um, two black women. Yeah. Two black women, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Lauren makes a lot, you know, talking about her background and the, her being different from a lot of people in her group. She's the one who makes a lot of the at least surface, at surface, less pragmatic calls where it's like, oh, we'll keep that kid. Oh, we'll keep that, you know, the baby, it's okay. Like, she's often going toe-to-toe with other people in the group who are like, no, we should just cut and run. And maybe her background is part of that. Yeah. She thinks in different ways. At the beginning Uh, of her journey, she was the one who was saying, like, don't talk to those people, just walk by them. (laughs) That's true. And then, like, kind of changes her tune as as they go. That's true. Hmm. So, yeah, I I think, yeah, I, I just wanted to come back to that point that there was something about Lauren that was real slippery. To me, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. it was like, hmm, what is it? What is it that her character is is conveying to me, the reader? And I started to ask myself after you showed me the introduction to the edition that you have, Becky, which was written by N.K. Jemison, that that there was this kind of this element of reading it in multiple times, so that you could kind of come back to the story at different times, and so the reader could come back to it when the reader has had different kind of contextual experiences in their own life that they may be able to kind of project into the book. And so I think I told you that the very first time I read it, I was kind of like, I didn't really care for it. And then we've had conversations for like a solid month now about this book. And I'm like, okay, there's all these things that I didn't quite see. And now I'm starting to kind of warm up. And But I'm still trying to get my hands around. And, you know, there's probably an argument to be made that it's not really for me. Mm-hmm. Um, to understand it, like I should probably try to understand it, but it's just I'm I'm not the target audience necessarily. So I just thought that was something I found mm. interesting about her character. Her character seems elusive to me. You know, she is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think as the as the book goes on, where she starts to embody more this role of a religious leader, she like that's what she's more able to to be like welcoming people in because she's building a religion. And so that's always on her mind. She ends up having that conversation with the old man who's I, you know, maybe we should respect this character and remember his name. (laughs) The old man. Um, It's Bankle. Bankle. Yeah. Yeah. That's got, by the way, you know, now that you said that, that has a meaning. It's, it's somewhere right about the time she meets him when they first get on the freeway. They talk about, her grandfather and his father were the same generation where a lot of black Americans were. Oh, yes. They were taking back African names in the 60s yeah. and 70s. Yeah. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that. I feel like she represents, and I don't know, I, you know, not in a, in a straight off way, but like there's all these generational tensions and different attitudes, you know, that echo different attitudes in, 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 in black history in America. And she sort of represents the future, but she's also like a kid. So like she's inconsistent and like, you know what I mean? It's a lot to put, you know, to sort of try, trying on the one hand to be this um, avatar of the future. But also, you know. Meanwhile, she's like 18. Yeah, her um, brain is fully. And so she's all inconsistent and, you know, makes mistakes and yeah. Um, But I was. What I was saying is she does have this conversation with Bankel about, um, like, Earthseed is the most important thing for me, and if you want to be with me, this is going to be a part of your life. And he's like, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, he's like, 
not really into it, but was really into her. So he's going to um, accept that they're building a, a community. And then I remember when I started reading this book, I think I said to Austin, I was like, is she starting a cult? Ooh. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the dark side of that possibility. I mean, and then you can just get in this whole conversation about the distinctions of like what makes something a cult or not. But because he talks too, I think it's him who talks about how, oh, you know, Maybe it's him or maybe it's someone else who talks about how people will change it, people will interpret it. She's like, no, I'm going to control everything. And I'm like, well, that's yeah. a real mm-hmm. personality-driven. It did make me think a bit about, like, Scientology. Mm. This idea of, like, you know, our future is in space. In stars. Yeah, although I don't I don't have a great grasp of it what Scientology is, but <laughs> um, I feel, I guess probably around the time that this was written, there was a real movement then for pe- people to be sort of like self actualized, you know, mm. like especially in of, California. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Sort of the new age. Oh dear. This, <laughs> what a soup. Um, <laughs> Southern California in the eighties and nineties. That's when yeah. I lived there. Um, but there was a real sense of, you know, you're kind of the master or mistress of your own destiny type of, of arrangement. And so if you were sort of fancy enough about it, then, yeah, then people would kind of come and support you doing that. But everybody was looking for an answer and they were all sort of fracturing, looking for answers within in that way and not communally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got lots to say about where I think socially we've come to, you know, value individualism so much that we think of community as a liability Mm. that's probably a conversation for another day (laughs) (laughs) i could go on about that but that's probably a little piece of what was going on there with earth seed well and that is kind of the conversation that she ends up having with bankle and he's like you just come with me and my sister lives here and there's enough for us that we can like live there. And she says, no, I have my whole community with me and we're all taking care of each other. But I was also thinking about how like the fur, the closer they get to where they want to settle, the more she's interested in having children along the way. And I think it's because she realizes she needs kids to like build her religious community. Um, she needs youngsters to like grow up in the community. And the last man that they meet who joins with his daughter who's small. She sees him specifically as like an asset to the community because he's such a good father. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that the daughter of that guy is also a hyper empath. Yeah, mm-hmm. they both are. Yeah. yeah. She has that conversation she, with him about whether it's inherited or. Right. And she's so incredibly sensitive that she'll end up like balling up on the ground and and just like coming into herself and just being in a little shell. Yeah. And that's how part of a background of being beaten and stuff. Yeah. There was that towards the end where they're talking about, so they reached the, I don't know, homestead or whatever, where they're going to stay. And each couple essentially has this conversation about whether they're going to stay there or continue North. And Harry does want to keep going North because he wants somewhere where he can earn cash money, which I think is interesting to have them still really care about earning money when they need it to buy things, but it's so devalued at the same time where there's, they say like a thousand dollars seems like a lot, but it's not right. Even as far as buying food, it'll feed you for a week and a half or two weeks or something. Yeah. But the, that one man says, well, I think if you keep going, there's these company towns, you could get a job as a driver. And he thinks that he means like a truck driver. 
And what he says, no, I mean a slave driver. And he's like, I can't believe you think that I would right. do that. And he's like, that's, that's the job that exists for a white man up there. Yeah. So that's why they decide to stay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a crazy moment. Yeah. Boy, if that isn't an indictment. <laughs> yeah. Man. It was really, this is probably revealing some of my genre. You know, we absorb certain ideas about different genres from the culture. But I, I was, and I don't read a lot of sci-fi, but it didn't read like I expected it to read. I mean, it's very readable and, and sort of plain spoken. And I mean, I know it's not the most sci, you know, hard sci-fi type of book, but, uh, and, and has lyricism and things like that. And I know that's some of my biases. Mm-hmm. I recognize <laughs> that, but. <laughs> I thought this was quite readable for a science fiction book. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> But, like, I think if you hadn't told me it was a science fiction book, I wouldn't have even thought about it in those terms. You know, like, if it, you know, you sort of pick up an idea of, of or attach it to a certain author's name, and, and so it just didn't read on the page level like I expected. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely more like a dystopian and maybe yeah. more speculative. Although it does have this thing, which I've mentioned before, that I don't really love about sci-fi in general, which is, you know, I, I appreciate very much what Earthseed is. You know, we talked about the power of the text and this one little part of it that was kind of my favorite part, but that the idea of using the technology within a sci-fi world to mm. escape to escape problems and mm-hmm. solving problems. Yeah, and that typically within the science fiction genre, um, I think, will fall to a privileged class, which almost always, of course, is white men. And mm-hmm. um, then within this particular uh story i think she's trying to achieve that same sense but in the spiritual way so that it's like spiritually you could grab onto it then if you are as the character is a black woman but that's it's something that i don't typically love about sci-fi is that somebody would say well here's an opportunity to run away from and leave that problem for somebody else to have to slug through yeah it is an interesting like contrast with you know, a lot of religions teach that, like, the poor will be the inheritors of, you know, heaven or mm-hmm. that there's, like, nobility in poverty. And to mix that with with science fiction, I think, does kind of interesting things. There's, I feel like I talk about Ted Chiang all of the time. But he's, <laughs> a, he's a science fiction writer. He writes short stories. And he does a lot where he mixes, like, kind of religious themes in with science fiction and a higher science fiction than this book is where, you know, it's really, like, a lot about technology and, like, time travel. And then that's what I really like about it is, uh, is those, like, kind of two different themes coming together. Yeah. So I would recommend that if you think you don't like science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't mean to diss science fiction. I was more saying, you know, I sort of think the genre – divisions have been bad and it, and it's just sort of like good writing and bad writing you know and 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 when you let that drop away that was more my point <laughs> you know um is that you know if we can forget our expectations we can be surprised by things and i, I was surprised by this book there's I, a lot yeah, going on in it yeah and i also don't mean to say i think sci-fi is not good um but I do, it did lead me, you know, especially with this book to, to kind of get back into exploring the more spiritual mm-hmm. piece. Mm. And then, um, as I had shared with you guys, kind of the, the difference in literary 
criticism theory about Afrofuturism and African futurism. And there's sort of a fundamental split between sort of the more hard science technology and then sort of a place-based spiritualism, which is just something that personally resonates more with me, just Mm -hmm. that that more uh, connection to nature and that type of thing. That's kind of fundamentally a little more joyful, I think, Mm -hmm. um, than you know, than Afrofuturism, which comes from a place of, of trauma and setback and, you know, and being set upon, which I think we saw at the beginning of the book that Lauren and her community are just set upon. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we've talked about this before. There's kind of rabbit holes that you can end mm-hmm. up going down where one book can lead you to lots of other Oh, things. absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's in, kind of- interesting too, too. I don't, I think it was more in the, in the NPR story where they're playing interviews with her. She talks a little about about genre in like labels and the way that it can pigeonhole you or not you know like mm-hmm. people made her out to be like the voice of afrofuturism but that's like you know she wasn't planning to do that or she was just writing right she's yeah. just trying to write her i think she plays the different tensions again you know embodies and plays the different tensions against each other in this book really well about the different attitudes toward where they're at and where they're going you know and sort of traditions of resilience versus not always versus but versus transformation you know which i think lauren more represents this idea and her father and bankle and stuff represent more of a traditional attitude but uh I do think on the genre thing, I think it's really good to see, like, while she was alive, you know, she was really pigeonholed. People like Ursula Le Guin, too, are now um, being included. Like, Library of America is putting out an edition, of, is starting to collect Octavia Butler's works. Like, you're just starting to see more not-so-siloed recognition of some of these writers' works while they were alive were dismissed as this not-literature in the same way. So, Although... I will say that Octavia Butler was the first science fiction writer ever to mm-hmm. get a MacArthur Genius Grant. That's right. That's right. So she did, well, like, also kind of being, like, pigeonholed a little bit into these little genre categories. She also, like, expanded what those could mean at the same time. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think if that isn't the metaphor of what it means to be intersectional. Uh-huh. To have other people misinterpret what you are about and what you are capable of and then to turn that into complete and total excellence and, and just shoot all of those expectations out of the water. I, I mean, you know, it is February. Let's celebrate it, you know. Yeah. Just how amazing that achievement is. So it opens the door for all sorts of things. And, and I've been bragging about how much I just love these books, Becky, that you re- recommended to me as part of the reading challenge in 2019 by a Nigerian-American author, um, Akata Witch and Akata Warrior, and and how reading um, Octavia Butler's Kindred years ago made me want to try to read those types of books and, and, and just how special all that stuff is. So, I mean, some, somebody needed to be sort of the one to break that down. So... <laughs> I'm glad it was her. Yeah, yeah. When you mentioned the data, data, data chain, am I saying yeah. that right? Made me think of another speculative book that I read a while ago, Philip K. Dick, uh, The Man in High Castle, which made in, was made into a TV show. But uh, that book, that text plays through that whole book. And apparently Dick wrote it using the um, the text, you know, in the predictive manner that's how he made he made choices plot wise based on consulting 
um, the text. I don't know. It just reminded me another sort of speculative book, which is about if the Axis powers had um, had won World War Two, and a really it's a it's a beautiful book. Sad, much sadder than the TV. The TV show kind of made it more hopeful, and everybody's younger and better looking and stuff. But um, the book is the book is really good. That's the nature of television. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody's better looking on TV. You know. It is interesting. So I started to read the comic adaptation of Parable of the Sower and, you know, like her dad is drawn there and the art style is kind of like loose. It's not very like realistic necessarily. So I was like, oh, her dad looks like this. I want to like flip to the back and see how they drew Bankle and see if he's like looks like him. And he does look younger. And I think that's that was like a bit of a, a cop out mm-hmm. for the. <laughs> artists to like not draw him more the you know similar looking. You don't play that down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like well, I don't know, you guys, you're being a little soft <laughs> on this issue. <laughs> Certainly interesting to read. Now, I felt that with a number of books I've read this year, you know, sort of backlit by. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, everything kind of. What's going on? Yeah. 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 But that's kind of what Jemison is saying, like, in her introduction about rereading something. Yeah. Is there's, like, the phases of your life that make you read something different, but also, like, the backdrop of the world. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Honestly, I mean, even just um, from two months ago reading it till now, talking about it. So I'm still struggling with some of the things that I didn't really care for the first time I read it. But but then even just in conversation with the two of you where I'm thinking, oh, this is a, a, a context piece I didn't quite catch before. You know, it's kind of changing some perceptions, you know. I think it's a real difference when I talk about, you know, reading Akata Witch in 2019 and reading it in 2021 and how different my life feels. Like, speaking of place-based, you mm-hmm. know, I very, I very rarely leave this room, you know. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's, you know, your context can, can make all the difference or who, you know, who you talk to about it or the book you read right before. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm pretty curious about what uh, what 2020 pandemic literature we might be seeing soon. Yeah. It's interesting how everybody's reached back to pandemic literature before, too. Like, I'm, you know, seeing all these things about Pale Horse, Pale Rider, Catherine Ann Porter, and um, even, like, Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year, which that's a real deep cut. But... um, Like, people are reaching back. I always think it's interesting. Whatever is going on, people are always sort of reaching back and rediscovering things out of the literature. I mean, in the same way, like, you were talking about The Handmaid's Tale, which, was, you know, she wrote during the Reagan administration and stuff, getting picked up and speaking to people now. Mm-hmm. There's something about that. It is fundamentally because literature is about empathy. I mean, yes, you know, obviously, and you know this, Becky, especially because you are a children's librarian. You so and with my own daughter, I mean, when you are putting books in her hands and she sees those characters in those books and sees herself in those stories. And I have watched her and and how she's even learning the process of reading. So recognizing the letters and recognizing the sounds. And now she's got words and now she's got whole entire sentences. But now she's Mm. like can construct in her own mind entire plots and making up her own imaginary stories. And it's it's because she's been able to empathize 
through literature. And, and one of the things that makes a library the temple that it is, is the fact that it's, it's in service to, you know, what it means to be human and part mm. of a human community. So it reminds me of the Brodigan Library specifically because that, the whole point was that you could just drop off a manuscript and it would just be there and anybody could walk in and read. And so it's, it didn't even have to be necessarily that a publisher would think this was the most amazing bestseller, whatever, packaged and, and all the things. But it was just your story. And it was so pure, the connection to somebody being able to just walk in and say, here's my book. It's on the shelf. Somebody else can walk in and say, that sounds amazing. I'm going to read that. Yeah. Um, and it and makes it's me the, think the most direct. It's a really direct connection, I think. Speaking and it makes empathy. me think of In the Parable of the Sower, where she tries to pick up as many books as possible. Yeah. Even where it's like, you know, they're heavy. It's not like a great thing to take with you, right? If you're like on the run, but uh, they find, you know, any way that they can. Yeah. And I think that's part of the connection that she has with Bank Hold too, where they're like, see how many books you can fit in this cart. <laughs> that cart is very important. Um, <laughs> it's very important. It is full of books. There's a magic. I mean, it makes me think I've gotten really, and partially because of this, we had a conversation on this podcast about Jane Eyre a few months ago. And uh, since then, I've gotten really into working on our classics collection. You know, we're talking about a couple of books from the 80s and 90s, but there's a real magic, too, in picking up a book from, I don't even know what year that was written. Jane Eyre was published in 1847. Okay. I mean, you know, to have something cut through and speak to you across that amount of space and time, you know, it's it's potent stuff, you know, and you can find it at your library. I feel like LeVar Burton. (laughs) But it, it did make me think, Austin, when you were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, and you make fun of my, you know, classical education, but it is oh, I... we, t- we talk about, you know, uh, like reading the canon is always like, what does this piece of literature say about the human experience, the human condition, and why we keep right. coming back to it? Um, it's right. kind of like the central question of studying literature. We argue about the canon a lot. <laughs> um, that's what we do in our free time. Uh-huh. Well, there's a balance, right? Because, you know, somebody like Octavia Butler struggled to get in the canon. But it's true. But yeah, it's, you always have to be, true. like, reading and revising. What the canon is and why it's, why it is what it is. And what you oh. might have missed and why, you know, like, for a long time there weren't any women, you know, or very, very few women in it at all. And that's changed. There's right, you know, right. quite a few white women in the canon now. But yeah, keep, keep but reading. it's true. It, it's a commentary on us. You know, and it's, uh, it is. And any time um, a book you can read like 30 years after it's written and it feels like it was written last year, you know, I think that says something about the quality of the, of the writing and. Yeah. Predictive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. I, I'm, I'm saying kind of how just the same problems persist too. Yeah. Well, absolutely. yeah. Or have gotten worse. Sure. <laughs> you know, cause I'm sitting here with this book. So it's an artifact that exists. It's a physical thing, and th- but then the meaning meaning will change over time. The, the way that we react to it changes over time. So it's just like it's also a living, breathing thing, even though it's just a thing. It's just a thing that sits. It is. Yeah, that's kind of what um, she has, has that conversation with Benkel in the book about her text that she's written, and her whole philosophy is that like change is inevitable, so it's up to us okay. to shape it to what we want it to be. And he's like. People are going to do that to your to your writing. And she's like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> nah. nah, not uh, my writing. No. That makes me think of that Rebecca. I think it's Rebecca Solnit quote, you know, that a book is a heart that beats in the chest of another. 
you know, um, that it's a living thing and an intimate thing. Very intimate. You know, I, I've written stuff, and, and when I see it published, I'm like, oh, somebody's reading that. That was so personal. You know, I just felt so fragile saying that thing. And then, and now everybody's, you know, and maybe they're even criticizing it or saying mm-hmm. that it's terrible or what trash that woman should never write again. <laughs> but maybe they love it. And then they think they know me in a way that they don't mm-hmm. know me. And, and yeah, it's very vulnerable. It's very, it's intensive. Yeah. Do you guys want to just talk about the other stuff you're reading? Now that you finished The Parable of the Sower, what's next? Yeah, well, so I ended up at your recommendation, Becky, reading this book by Mariana Enriquez called Things We Lost in the Fire. Yeah. Um, the thing that I love about this book is the way that it is described as that this the prose of this book gives grace to the grotesque. And this book is... I thought I felt some dark things sometimes, but this book is full of dark things. Um, and I would just truly recommend it because it's, it's like scary and delightful at the same time. Um, and that's coming out of, um, Argentina. Yes. Yes. Argentina. Um, and it's a series of short stories. Uh, so there, each story is maybe like five pages long. So it's pretty quick. So you flip around if you need to, but man, oh man, um, it's, it hurts. It hurts good. Okay, and then I picked up Daughters of Jubilation, which I'm very much looking forward to, set in the South, and very much this sort of speculative magic people in magic places doing magic things. I'm really excited about that. And then I will just, I'll cut my list short, because I've obviously got this entire <laughs> stack of books here, and I could keep you here for another 20 minutes. But um, I will just say this book that I just started reading that I'm super thrilled to finish, um, which is called The Truffle Underground. Mm. Yeah, by Ryan uh, Jacobs. Jennifer read that with the uh, the library adult book club a couple of years ago, I think. Oh, fabulous! Okay, yeah. this book is ridiculously good. Um, so it's got everything that I love. Um, so it's kind of a muckraking in the the style of the jungle in a way, but it's about mm. the world of truffles, the food, and what kind of black markets and thievery and manipulation and, and mayhem. I mean, it, it's called A Tale of Mystery, Mayhem, and Manipulation. And then, yeah, and then I told you that I picked up um, The Handmaid's Tale graphic novel uh, when I went to the library the other day, and I've read it before, and I'm certainly looking forward to reading it again in this format because um, the pictures in this are just beautiful. So um, yeah. I think in, in some ways that the, the visual imagery that goes along with what the story is really about is um, kind of makes it all the more painful and real. <laughs> yeah, I remember I read I read that last year, maybe the year before, I think the year before. Um, and I really liked that, that adaptation. It'd been a while since I'd read the original, but it did draw kind of like different elements in the book. Austin, what are you reading? Oh man, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember what I'm reading. I always have lots and lots of books around. I like the like piles. Nicholson Baker talks about being able to roll over in bed and just like grab whatever and open it. And he, it's very important for him. And I'm like that too. Anyway. Um, what am I reading? Our guest last night, Robert Michael Pyle, um, I'm going to read some of his books. He had a, a movie come out with David Cross that's about based off one of his books. So I'm going to read that one where Bigfoot walks, Crossing the Dark Divide, um, and then also his book Wintergreen because 
Among other things, it starts in the reference room at the Longview Public Library. Nice. I'm also reading Vivian Gornick. I've really fallen in love with Vivian Gornick. She's probably most well-known for this memoir she wrote in the 80s called uh, Fierce Attachments. That's about her and her mother, and it's really good. But I'm reading another one of her books, The Romance of American Communism, which is about growing up working class Jewish with parents who are members of the Communist Party, sort of before Stalin's crimes came out and very idealistic about the left um, in New York City. Really good so far. And last, I this is a book I check out every once in a while when I get hopeful about actually finishing it. But I love Robert Caro's The Power Broker, which is about Robert Moses. He was a uh, New York, ele- uh, not an elected official, critically, he was not an elected official, but he made a tremendous amount of stuff happen and was a super powerful figure in shaping New York City and the whole country, really. And Robert Caro writes these biographies that are like, take somebody like that as a vehicle, but are like about everything. Um, and as a consequence, it's like, I don't know, 10 pound book. And so I check it out every once in a while in the hope that I will find the space in my life to read it. But uh, I'm I'm going for it again. So that's where I'm at. Okay. We're going to cheer you on. Okay. Um, (laughs) I I feel like I'm always, like, reading for something because I'm on, like, a couple of reading committees. I have books I have to read for that. And then book clubs that I do. So, like, I just – we just met for our teen book club at the library yesterday. I was reading Love All in Mode, which is, like, a cute – teenager romance about kids that go to like a um, culinary school in uh, yes. Paris. Um, but then next week I'm recording the podcast with Shira from Hello Life, which is an organization here in Longview that uh, helps people with like eating disorder recovery. So we're talking about books on body positivity and like anti-diet philosophy and so I am reading some of those. Like I'm like in my Libby right now. I have started a book called Radical Belonging, which is uh, the newest book by Lindo Bacon. And they wrote Health at Every Size, which was it's kind of like the foundational text for Health at Every Size, which is like a movement now. And a book called Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings, uh, oh. The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. There's a lot of great books in this on this topic so we'll be talking about some of them on the podcast next week so so uh thanks for coming on you guys this was a really great conversation about parable of the sower i am a real book club person if i could have a job where all i did was run book clubs that would be a dream um (laughs) and i i love how having like a conversation about a book can just really like enrich the experience of reading it and stuff so Absolutely. I think my dream job would be attending your book <laughs> So thanks for being on. Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to your show. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. And I'm Hillary. Bye. 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 
Studio time for Your Shelf or Mine is donated by KLOG, Cook and Country, and 101.5 The Wave. We at the Longview Public Library thank our local stations for their ongoing support. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McEldry from A Song for You. Find Megan on Facebook or Twitter at Meg McEldry or online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McEldry. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McEldry. I should have said, I'm sorry, Julia Butler Hansen, the most effective and beloved politician until Hillary Strobel. Um, <laughs> um, Paige, what do you got there? <laughs>